Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 79 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 79, we are going to be talking about a smorgasbord of seemingly straightforward topics that actually spider out into a great deal of depth and implications in terms of philosophy and practical applications in terms of quizzing. We're going to be talking about rulings and rules, context, the theories behind certain things. We're going to be talking about challenges and how challenges relate to different things, how quiz masters listen to challenges and what goes on in maybe a quiz master's mind as they are listening to a, a challenge and then what happens afterward. And that may seem somewhat surface level, but let me promise you it is very much not. And we'll see how far we can get through some of this really cool stuff. But before we get to that, I want to talk very briefly about the meet that was this just this past weekend on Saturday. It would have been uh, October 31st. Uh, Halloween in the morning. Well, it was the morning for me. I think it was midday for uh, folks who were on the East Coast. But it was the Adult Quizzing League or AQL International League. So it's uh, folks who have graduated from quizzing quizzingdom and moved into adult quizzingdom, which hasn't been a thing <laughs> until now because of Alan. Uh, who put together the first AQL international meet. There were, let's see, six, 12 teams competing. Uh, and some of them had fairly interesting names, but I want to run down a couple of the, couple of the, the results from what was going on. We had two different leagues. Uh, there was the standard league and then there was the super league. And I'm not really sure what difference was between those two because i think quizzers could self-select between whether they were part of the super league or the standard league maybe the super league you had to wear capes or something i don't know we don't want to have any cape discrimination though if that was the case but anyway um different different leagues so in the standard league uh teams uh one two and three were in order pink unicorns the mavericks and Pinterios United. Um, and in the Super League, uh, third place was Team 5, second place was the Brood of Vipers, and first place was the Powerpuff Boys. Um, so quite an interesting uh, series of developments there. Um, in terms of individual uh, averages, I do want to highlight uh, some folks who were within the uh, top five of, let's start, I guess this is with the Super League first, I guess. So fifth place was Marcus Veals. Uh, fourth place was Bethany with a 66.67. Actually, Marcus had a 66.67 as well. Josh Jetto from Team 5 was in third place with a 70. Chris Chang in second place with a 76.67. And Jeremy Swingle from Brood of Vipers, uh, representing PNW, was in first place with an average of 80. And then in the uh, standard league, those without capes, uh, fifth place was John Daigle at 66.67. Uh, Simon Lee, fourth place, 70. Uh, Lydia Taw, third place with an 80. Mary Kate Daigle, uh, sec second place with an 80. And Grace Daigle, uh, first place with an 86.67, which was really cool. So I got the... Um, uh, fortunate opportunity to quizmaster one of the third no four rooms there were four rooms uh, so i got to quizmaster one of the four rooms which was a lot of fun uh high level of 
quizzing skill throughout every quiz, high level of professionalism. Uh, I suppose there's no surprise on either of those two fronts, but it was an enormously fun event for me and I'm sure for everybody else who participated. All right, so with those announcements underway, Scott, you want to kick us through our discussion list? All right, so this first one is going to start fairly theoretical and philosophical philosophical and then get more specific so the definitions in the rulebook for out of context which is on the top of page 12 and the definitions for incorrect answers um, which is on the bottom of page 12 they are defined once so um, we are to believe they apply to every single question type but do you think the specific question type ever contextualizes how those rules and the wordings of those rules from the rule book are applied to the extent that um, there might be different standards for out of context or incorrect information depending on the question type? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly references that happens um, in terms of context, that's absolutely true. Uh, references change and um, uh, quote and finishes change in terms of context. Yeah. So I guess context does, depending on the type, because it's defined, but that's because it's defined more specifically, right? Right, right, yeah. When you get to a different type, if the type provides, you know, let's call it overriding information. So, like, my understanding, I look at this from a very, I don't know, I, I think it's probably too um, judgmental to say that it's logical, um, but I do think it is logical. I, I approach it from a almost a programmatic perspective, software programmatic perspective, where you sort of set up with a series of defaults. And then in special cases, you set up overrides to those defaults. And so essentially, you know, anything that's mentioned, you said once, but I, I would call it, um, it's mentioned in a global sense is sort of what I would say, uh, in terms of context and correct versus inf incorrect information that applies universally. And then if something is written in a specific context, context, that specific context overrides uh, the general case. So let's say hypothetically, um, in the correct context, whatever, and it doesn't matter if the correct context is one verse or five verses up or down, but in the correct context, the phrase says the word of God, and then elsewhere in the material, but out of context, it says something like the words of the Lord. And let's say, again, for the sake of this hypothetical, we have deemed that if a quizzer says the words of the Lord, it takes them out of context. Are you with me so far? Yep. Would you think that that determination would be completely equal whether or not it was an interrogative versus a reference question versus a finish the verse? In terms of the phrase taking them out of context or the distance of that context? No. Um, so let's say if I've determined for an interrogative question that saying this phrase takes them out of context, would you think that I should make the exact same context decision uh, regardless of any other question type? Well, so, yeah, again, in terms of that phrase, no, it should be the same. In terms of the distance from, you know, the size of context will, will be different based on the reference versus, say, an interrogative, right? Um, so like Absolutely. If you're, yeah, so, like, if you're talking about, like, you know, a chapter verse reference, if you're one verse out, you're out of context. If you're talking about an interrogative, there's the, you know, the plus or minus five uh, not including the origin verse, uh, which is, I, 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 that's not explicitly written into the rule book, but I believe that's how you interpret it. And, and I interpret it the same way, just because I think it, that makes the 
most logical sense. It's also the most gracious in terms of size of, of context. So, you know, in terms of where that alternate phrase exists, as far as the distance away, well, not, it's not distance away from context, whether that phrase is in or out of context, the, the, the nature of the size of context changes, but the phrase being in or out of context uh, by the nature of the phrase does not change. Yeah. So, I mean, I would just want to abstract it to um, they are definitively in a different place. Right. And that that statement does not change based on the question type. That Yeah, I agree. Okay. So I and so that's on context. But when it comes to incorrect information, I think that there is definitely a different threshold based on question type. And I think the best example is reference question. So it could be for a, a chapter verse reference. In verse one, it says, nice man. And in verse two, it says, kind man. And if I ask what man and you say the one that's in the other verse, I'm going to say um, that you're probably both incorrect and out of context when if it was an interrogative question and the answer was kind man and you said nice man, which is 15 verses away or something, I would not say that you are either out of context or incorrect on the interrogative. That's interesting. Can you point me to some place in the rule book that supports that interpretation? No. Right. So it's just like if incorrect information is given. And I think so I am I am saying that because of the type, this is incorrect information. Interesting. Yeah, I'm I I can see the argument for why that ought to be considered true in, in, in true in, in the sense of like a, a good way to structure the rules. But I don't know that the rule book actually allows me to get there. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to hit on the concept later of is a quiz master only allowed to do things that they are explicitly like stated to do, or can they do things as long as it's not explicitly disallowed? Right. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, but this is a case where to me, incorrect information, the, the threshold for that is different depending on the type. Um, and I think that follows like, even if it's not stated, it follows because the types are different and they're defined differently and they're testing different, um, segments of the material in different ways. Yeah, I can see the argument. Um, I, I really honestly struggle to get there personally because I, I need something in the rule book to let to, to, I, I feel like I need something in the rule book to let me interpret it that way as a quiz master. Otherwise, to, to me, I, I feel like I'm constrained to have a singular definition of incorrect information unless there's some kind of override. I, and I think that makes, that makes sense. So if I, if you were the quizzer and I, as a quiz master, ruled you incorrect on this nice man, kind man chapter verse reference situation, like, would you just try to make a case of why it's, you don't deem it to be incorrect? Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, here's the thing. Even if I agree with your interpretation, but I think I can challenge and maybe get you to change your mind, I'm going to attempt to challenge and try to get you to change your mind. I mean, it's, this is not this is not like I'm trying to pull one over on you or it's not like I'm trying to trick the quiz master or anything like that, but rather I am, you know, going as far as I can to be as an effective quizzer slash captain quizzer as I can be. So as, you know, as long as I'm challenging appropriately, respectfully, then yeah, I'm going to try to squeeze every point I can onto the board. Because to me, I think there are many places where reference questions are testing very similar passages. And if I'd thought that the thresholds for incorrect were the same regardless of question type, I would be specifically obtuse as a quizzer 
and challenge all the time saying like, these are basically the same word and synonyms. So I should be able to say either. <laughs> in fact, even saying using one is good enough to be prompted for my question. Right. Now keep in mind though, that the best way to answer is just to get the question correct, to be as precise as possible and actually say the right words and always be in context. But so what we're talking about here is when a quizzer strays from that and is, a, is effectively making a, an error, quote unquote, not in the sense of say a rule book error, but is making an error in the sense of not being absolutely word perfect the first time through their answer. And then based on the quiz master's ruling, they are then challenging and trying to argue their case, right. Or, or persuade the quiz master to their particular point of view. I think all of those things are, 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 reasonable. Yeah. But you know, if you're working on a, a list, sometimes you might say, oh, these seven multiple answers all start with Jesus, but they happen to be in context. And so you are reducing your risk footprint by realizing that. And I think there are many reference questions that you could have a, a similar realization on because the passages are so similar that would allow you to quote both and not have to be as precise the first time. Yeah, I, I I think you could be right. There could be scenarios where that absolutely exists. I think the way to solve this problem then is with a, a more specific language out of the rulebook rather than quiz masters deciding to independently, you know, rule differently. Sure. So then it, that takes us to um, a ruling that happened um, this weekend where it was a finish the verse and um, the verse starts because Joseph, her husband... And the quizzer started with because Joseph, her father, and then later corrected themselves and was ruled correct. And then there was a challenge saying the quizzer should have been counted, should have been deemed incorrect when they said because Joseph, her father, because Joseph is not her father. Um, so it, the quizzer would be have given incorrect information at that point. And um, I'm paraphrasing here because I have secondhand knowledge, but the quiz master overruled the challenge with the reasoning that um, – they only had the one word wrong, and while that might be enough to call them wrong on an interrogative question, it is not enough to call them wrong on a finish the verse. And do you have thoughts about that that sequence of events and that reasoning used? Yeah, I do have thoughts. So again, I wasn't there; I was in a different room. Um, but I did hear about this after the fact. Uh, so you know, secondhand, just like you, possibly even thirdhand. Come to think of it, although maybe third hand first. And then I heard it second hand. I don't know something along those lines, but definitely I, I did not hear it in, in the moment. So I am going to proceed under the assumption that your, your retelling of it, um, which I guess is third hand is, is a perfectly accurate retelling thereof. And so lots of disclaimers, right? So I'm only, I'm only responding to what I'm hearing. Right. But in the, in that case, I can understand the ruling, but I think the ruling is incorrect. Um, and the reason so I'll start with why I think I can understand the ruling, right? Because from the idea of, a, of what's going on inside a Quizmaster's mind, when you're listening to an answer of an interrogative, you're actively thinking of, are they telling me something that is incorrect, right? Um, you don't necessarily care if they get all the words right. You're looking for, you know, is that a synonym or an antonym, you know, are, are, are they, are they jumping out of context? That's in your head, that kind of thing. When you're listening to a quote or a finish the verse or, or any kind of finished question, you're not, you're thinking much more of like, are they giving me every single word, word perfectly? Are they giving me enough of like, if it's one word that's incorrect or they skip a word, do they go back and fix it in such a way that I am 
overwhelmingly convinced that they are they are reciting it word perfectly, right? Because you don't necessarily have to go, you know, if you if you make a mistake, you don't have to start all over again. You can correct that one mistake if it's if it's abundantly clear to the quiz master that you're doing so, right? So I think from a quiz master's perspective, now granted context also becomes a thing. So you're still thinking about context the same as you would with an interrogative. But the idea is the quiz master's mind is focused on something different, right? I, I call it 60% of your of your focus is slightly different. Uh, when you're listening to a finish versus when you're listening to an interrogative, right? And so in that way, you know, if somebody says a word that is clearly wrong in the sense of wrong information, um, you might interpret that from the perspective of a finish to say, well, but they still have 30 seconds to go back and fix that. Just as if they said, um, you know, let's say he versus they or something like that. Um, I'm trying to think of some other or or they added an extra the or or skipped over a the or something like that. So I can understand where the quiz master's mind is going with that. The thing, though, is when the challenge takes place, you can't rule that way because the rulebook doesn't give you the latitude to rule that way. There is nothing in the quote or finish section of the rulebook, as far as I'm aware, that allows you to change the definition of incorrect information because you are in, you know, a quote or finish context. Yes. So I was interested to get your thoughts on this because um, initially I was thinking, well, why would you treat this phrase within a finish the verse any different than an interrogative? So to me, the reasoning is poor to start with because you're acknowledging that there's a different level of threshold. But then in the exact same breath, I think that there should be a different threshold between reference questions and other types, right? So I was just wanting to tease all of that out. And I, I want to, I would think that you are, you are being a whole lot more consistent in your thoughts than I am being. <laughs> because well, so threat, you think it, dive into what you're talking about. D dive into what you're talking about. You're saying that you think that there should be an incorrect information difference between, say, a finish and an interrogative. What do you think that difference ought to be? Well, to me, the difference is um, in an interrogative question, it has something unique in the first five words that limits it to exactly one place in the material. And on a reference question, it does not have that, which means we have to give you additional information being the chapter or the verse. And so automatically you have phrases that are more vague and specific to um, a very small amount of information, right? Like a verse. And because in my head a smaller piece and more vague piece of information is being tested, what is incorrect also shrinks. Hmm. Because I, to me, I don't follow to the me, logic, but, but keep going. I mean, basically what it all comes down to is if nice man and kind man exist in different verses and the quizzer is able to guess the incorrect one but not be incorrect, then to me the question is gameable and should at, at the very least shouldn't be written. Um, but to me that speaks more to a failing in the rule book than a failing on the question writer's part. Okay, okay. So, okay, so let me... So what you're arguing for is actually that incorrect information is more strict in a finish than it is in an interrogative, not less. No, I'm saying it's more strict in a reference question. More strict in a reference question than in a an interrogative. Correct. And I view almost any other question type as equal because um, it kind of holds the same first. You know, it's 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 localizable to to one verse in the first five words, but it's not um, doesn't need to be more specific than that. You know. 
Right, right. I'd have to think about this, but I, I am inclined to support... Now, I'd, I'd, I'd need to think about this more before I officially say where I'm at, <laughs> but but I am inclined to support a rulebook change to make the rulebook uh, fall in line with what you're talking about. I think I think that makes sense in, in my mind as I'm thinking through. I'd need to think through the implications of it uh, a pretty good deal before I fully you know, endorsed the, the change, but prior for, uh, you know, prior to that change in the rule book, I, I couldn't go there as a quiz master. Sure. And I think it, it follows my, my question writing belief that if say the phrase word of God exists 20 times in the material and the word of doesn't appear any other times that it's a really poor test to write the question, the word of God. But if you dig and you, I, I bet you'd agree with that, right? Like it's, Oh yeah, totally. But if you dig behind it, what I'm what I'm really what my belief is founded on is the quizzer could answer the wrong word of God, and I would have to count them correct, hmm. right? Yeah. Because I mm-hmm. I can't know what verse they are intending to answer from, and so in the same vein, if because the rulebook doesn't say that this is the way it is, we you you know if we decide that we can't be applying a different threshold of incorrect. Um, then I would definitely not want to write any sort of reference question that I view would be as gameable as that word of God question. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So some follow-up questions. Do you think that because finish and quote questions need to be word perfect, that that means there should be an increased level of, or threshold of what constitutes incorrect because we are demanding word perfectness? No, I don't think there needs to be an increased Amount. I think there needs to be at least the same, which is the way I think the rulebook is, you know, is right now simply because it doesn't make any statements to the contrary. But I could see the argument that it could be made less so. Uh, but I think I would be against a change to make it less so. Okay. So some more follow up questions. Um, and on each of these, I have two questions. And the two questions are. Should these two situations be treated differently? But then also, do you have you observed quiz masters treating them differently? And the first one is um, when a quizzer says something incorrect from the question portion versus from the answer portion. Yeah, so uh, we'll do the second one first. So I have absolutely noticed quiz masters treating that those situations differently. I think the quiz master should not. Okay. And then the next one is, if a quizzer has said a lot of word perfect information and then says something small that is incorrect versus the quizzer not having said much information at all and then saying something small that is incorrect. <laughs> yeah. So that I have also seen uh, quiz masters be very comfortable kind of pretending that, well, they were word perfect so carefully. And then they said these couple of words that clearly puts them out of context, but because they were so word perfect up until this point, I'm going to overlook it. Um, and I, I get the reasoning behind that. Um, uh, but I, I think that's not a good thing. I agree. Like I've definitely seen times when a quizzer is perfectly quoting an entire verse and maybe they're going through all of the listing of the disciples and then they throw in a name that's not one of the disciples and it they're just given a pass when if they're being asked an interrogative question where that one name is the answer and they say a different one well i think every quiz master is ruling them incorrect immediately you know right right and so i think these are both interesting cases where i don't think quiz masters treat the situations the same and i think you have to 
I agree. I think you have to, but we should talk about why uh, we think Quizmasters have to. Um, do you want to go first or me? Well, um, how about you go first? But this is reminding me of our conversation about if a Quizmaster has said the first part of a question, can the quizzer be counted incorrect for re-saying that part of the question incorrectly? <laughs> and I don't even right. remember what we what we settled on, right? But I think we settled on nothing is considered to be locked in can never be incorrect. Yeah. Um, so I think I think we if I would go back to now. Of course, I can't remember what I agreed to, but I think I agreed, and I think where I am at least right now because things change in my head from time to time, which is bad. They should be way more consistent, but. Um, I think it's more if they say it incorrectly, if, if a quiz master says a question portion and the quizzer says that portion incorrectly in the sense that it is not exactly what the quiz master said, but it is not incorrect information, um, then I would be okay with it. Um, but if they, if they say something that is incorrect, even though the quiz master said what is correct, the fact that the quiz master said it correctly does not give the person a pass. Um, if that makes any sense. Um, but anyway, going back to, to, to why, why is this important, right? Why do I care that quiz masters be what almost seems, I mean, well, it's not seems, I mean, I'm, I'm basically arguing that quiz masters need to be more strict right? Um, to allow less and count quizzers wrong more. And you would think that that would be a bad idea because, uh, you know, every quiz master, every good quiz master wants to count everybody correct all the time. We want quizzers to get questions correct, right? That, that we're, we're seeking out opportunities to count you correct all the time. I mean, there was a, a what was it? The meet before last in PNW, there was a quizzer who answered a question and I, I spent, I don't know, probably two minutes, like reading through the rule book, trying to figure out a way that I could count them correct. Um, and I couldn't find it. So I ultimately had to count them incorrect. But it was like, that's my desire is like, I'm looking for ways to count you correct. So why am I then advocating for this idea of saying, but no, Quizmaster, you must count them incorrect. And the reason is because more than my desire to have quizzers be counted correct so that they are motivated and, and encouraged, what I really, really, really don't want to have is inconsistency between Quizmasters rooms, meets, and districts, and so forth. I Now, I'm, I'm never going to get perfect consistency, right? Like, ideally, I would love to have perfect consistency across every Quizmaster quiz, room, meet, district, everything, right? But that is never going to happen. And I'm okay, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to say I'm okay, because I hate the inconsistency. I'm, I'm begrudgingly okay with that inconsistency, but I want to strive toward as close as we can get to consistent rulings between quizmasters and rooms and districts and everything. And the way we get there is by strict ad, uh, ad, uh, application of the rules, right? Um, so if we don't like the way a rule lands, uh, we need to change the rule book, not change our rulings in the moment, right? So this is very similar to the notion of uh, question writers versus question readers, right? The quiz master versus, versus the 
editor, you know, kind of thing. Uh, we give a lot of latitude to the editor. And then as a quiz master, we say, you don't have that same latitude. You, you can't, you know, rewrite the question on the fly, you know, kind of stuff. You can't decide that because the question editor said a certain clause is required for the answer to be correct, you cannot decide in the moment that uh, it's not required, you know, unless the question is it on its face invalid, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the the reason we do that is to say we want consistency between the rooms so that if a quizzer is in one room versus another, they will have as close to a fair contest as possible, right? Because we're we're in an environment where, you know, not every quizzer is going to have, you know, you take any two quizzers across to meet. Uh, unless they're on the same team, uh, and even then, right, uh, you, you're you not going to get exactly the same questions available to every quizzer across every meet. Um, there's going to be differences in, in uh, and there's going to be interpretive differences that exist there as well, but we want to try to make the environment as fair as possible, because if we foster an unfair environment, we're going to demotivate, uh, and demotivation is anti-mission, right? So, we want to try to get the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, which means we need to strive for absolute fairness. And that ultimately means we have to interpret the rulebook strictly. And if we don't like that, we need to change the rulebook. If we don't like a question, we need to edit the question, but not at the moment of the actual quiz itself. Absolutely. And it's it's helpful for you to bring us back to that, right? Because we're, we're not trying to just figure out every way to count a quiz or incorrect. It's that the fairness trumps everything. And um, if we determine that ultimate fairness in the application of a particular rule is actually demotivating um, because of the way that the rule gets applied, then, as you said, we would want to change the rule. And so the rulebook doesn't say incorrect information is different in the question portion versus the answer portion. Um, and it doesn't say um, the percentage that a quizzer is incorrect determines whether or not um, they're incorrect in a binary yes or no sense, right? It doesn't say any of that stuff. And so any interpretation to that end would would lead to a lot of inconsistency unless everyone is doing the same thing, which is not going to happen for something which is definitely extra interpretation and kind of personal application of it. Um, I had another thought, but I have forgotten what it is. Oh, um, I think a fun part about Bible quizzing is that the quizzer gets to decide how much information they get by uh, the timing of their jump. This is where it's very different from a game like Jeopardy, where you're buzzing in, but you're not allowed to buzz in until the entire question is read. But in quizzing, the ability to jump at any at any, po any point does not just affect how much information you get. It changes how much information you have to say to be correct. And so because that is never going to be consistent um, even on the same question asked throughout the year and in different rooms, I think that's why you shouldn't be drawing any distinctions between the question portion and the answer portion because those are kind of always changing, right? Because the written portion and the asked, the, the division between the two in the written world and in the actual asked world are not the same. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear your point. I'm not sure I totally agree with that reasoning, although I want to get to the same conclusion as you. Sure, because, I mean, even abstracting it a ton, all of the question types and formats and definition are just to test material knowledge, right? <laughs> They're just vehicles. And so um, even the notion of a question portion and an answer portion is just vehicles to test material knowledge. So to me, at the end of the day, it's just material, and I don't care 
the specific forms and reasons that it came about. Yeah. I mean, what drives me is, is fairness across, you know, as much, as close to complete fairness as we can get to N- understanding that we will never get perfection, but you know, as close to perfection as we can in terms of fairness. Right. So to me, it's the, you know, I think you said something that's absolutely true and super important to, for everybody to understand the idea that, you know, a given question uh, a quizzer in room one in meet one with Quizmaster A and a quizzer in meet three room four with Quizmaster B. Uh, when that question comes up, both of those quizzers have exactly the same opportunity to shape how much information they get in uh, read out in the question, right? Now, this is assuming nobody else jumps, right? You're competing against other teams. But the idea being that assuming nobody else jumps, you are the one, if you are the one person who jumps, you are the one who is deciding how much gets read out. And based on your decision there and your strategy for when you want to jump to be able to cut off the information and ensure you you win the jump versus somebody else getting the jump versus your effectiveness of being able to answer that question. Tuning that ratio is part of the strategy of quizzing. And it is, it ought to be as close to the same in situation one as in situation two. Yeah, definitely. But I think these um, are good topics to consider, especially as well, I guess the, the initial rulebook rewrite is, is aiming for functional parity, so it will not introduce any sort of clarifying language um, on topics like these, but future iterations absolutely could, right? Yeah, and hopefully will. I mean, the idea of the idea of the rulebook rewrite is that once we get to functional equivalence and everyone is comfortable with that, it, the, the new process and new format uh, and new methodology behind managing the rulebook will allow us to make these sorts of changes in a, a more iterative experimental way and allow people to adopt them at, uh, and I say people, I mean districts, allow districts or churches to adopt the changes uh, based on their comfort level at whatever time they want. Yep. All right. So this next bit is what I call Scott's questions corner for Griffin. So um, you have basically no background in any of these, and I just thought of them. The first one is divvying up multiple answers to create an interrogative. Is it valid and is it good? So my first example is like the fruit of the spirit, you know, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and what? What do you think of that construct of a question? Uh, oh, it makes me, it makes me sad. Um, I don't, I, I mean, it's valid. Um, so, I mean, we're not talking about valid or invalid. We're just talking about better versus less better, right? Well, I want, I always want to ask the question, is it valid and is it good? Both, you know, both and, and yeah. I, I'm only posing you things that I know are valid, but I think it's helpful to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, so is it valid? Yes. I mean, clearly it's valid. It follows all the rules required of, of ints and, uh, you know, and, and then some, uh, I mean, it certainly, it, it, it does flow reasonably well. I, I don't know. I just, I think, I think in that specific example, a multiple answer, I mean, the, the, the situation just screams for multiple answer, right? I mean, it's just, it calls out that the multiple answer is a better type to test the material than an interrogative. I wouldn't super cringe if I came across an interrogative written that way, but I, you know, I'd, I'd be like, yeah, this is kind of a stretch and maybe they wrote the multiple answer 
And then they wrote the, the, the writer, I mean, wrote the multiple answer and then wrote an interrogative because they're like, oh, there's another way I can test the same material. And okay, okay, fine. That's fair. Um, but I think the multiple answer version is, I don't know, twice as good as the interrogative version, three times as good as the interrogative version. I mean, substantially better. I agree. And I'm trying to think, I feel like I had a reason that I wanted to ask this because I, I was pretty sure that you would think about about these the exact way that I think. But I can I can't think of what application question I had. But let's jump to the when example, which I think is more interesting. So in one of the gospels it says something like at dawn on the third day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to look at the, look at the tomb. Do you think when questions, the when interrogative word can can be a multiple answer because it's one point in time, but maybe multiple descriptions. So like Mary Magdalene went to look at the tomb when? In that specific example, no. Um, I think there are possibly cases when there are multiple answer wins, though, right? Um, so, like, um, I can't think of one off the top of my head, um, but let's say, uh, when do you pass the Jerusalem gates, right? Well, you pass the Jerusalem gates when you walk past them going north, and you walk past them when you are walking past them going south. So there are two cases listed in the text, let's say, in this verse I'm just making up right now, um, where you pass the Jerusalem gates. So I could say you pass the Jerusalem gates when, and there are two answers, They that's a multiple answer, right? But in the case that you provided... I don't see that as a multiple answer. I see that as one time described two different ways. Sure. Um, I don't really know how I feel. I think it's a little bit shoehorned, but I think, are there multiple answers to the interrogative or more than one? I think there is. So I think you kind of have to just, I would look at it in that more of a blinder sense than in the, well, in English, when we say when, we're referring to one point in time. So a quiz question asking for when can only, you know, should, like this is obviously a point in time with two descriptors from, you know, but I think there are more than there is more than one answer to the interrogative when in the example you gave. Yeah. Interesting. I guess I would, I would disagree. Um, I think, I think it's, it's one time described twice. Um, so to me, it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, Hey Scott, can you go get me that shoe? And Scott says, well, what shoe? And I say, the shoe that is brown, the one that's next to the door, right? I'm, it's not a multiple answer, right? It's, it's one thing. Sure. But, but I think it, it could, I think you could still craft a, a situation where there's more than one answer to the interrogative. Hmm. Okay. Fair enough. But what I was thinking of, a, 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 a sort of different question is from Hebrews 1 1. So it says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. You would have to squint a little bit. So please squint with me for the purposes of this, that <laughs> um, in the past and at many times are two wins, right? So just please squint with me. Um, do you think asking the question, going back to our divvying up multiple answers, in the past, God, no, here's the question. God spoke to our forefathers at many times and in various ways when. Do you think that question could be considered tricky? No. Okay. I don't think it would be, I mean, it's, it's obviously a valid question. I don't think it would be great. It would just be weird that there's like also a description of when in the question portion and it's asking for a when. Yeah. Um, yeah. But okay. Um, oh, here's another random question on multiple answers. Do you think a question writer is required to include, not required, but do you think a question writer should include all possible answers in a multiple answer? 
Um, I mean, in the fruit of the spirit example, you absolutely should. But um, in a Hebrews example, one part of the verse might say the blood of bulls and goats, and another part of the verse says the blood of Christ. Um, and I know you hate split multiple answers, but there could be an argument made there for why the blood of what bulls and goats is um, all that's needed. But sure. I want, but I know I've run across some people that would find it very confusing to have not all p- possible answers included as um, in the answer. So in general, like, what are we trying to do? We're trying to write questions that test material knowledge, right? Uh, to evoke more material memorization, right? So to me, including more material in the answer without really twisting the rule book too badly and contorting people's, you know, brains uh, when you do it. Like, like I think in general, if you have, if you are able to add more information into the answer and not have either Scott or myself get annoyed with you, uh, it is generally a good thing. Sure. All right. I think I've beat this one to death. Let's go on. So this again is a theoretical one. So there's, what do you think about the principle of a quiz master can only do what is explicitly granted in the rule book? Like, um, the way we treat verbal prompts, like a quiz master not only has to do them, but those are absolutely the only verbal things a quiz master can say until they make the ruling. Right. Right. Um, but are there times where we allow a quiz master to do something because it isn't explicitly disallowed? I think there are. Right. So I've 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 moved over. I don't know how many years I've been quiz mastering um, 20. Uh, I don't know. A long time. I have shifted a lot on this one um, because I used to be of the opinion that the, you know, the, the quiz master is dictator of his or her room. And as long as the rule book says, as long as the rule book doesn't say you can't do something, you're allowed. Right. And I have shifted over time to, and, and the reason I believe that I should, I should say why I believe that the reason I believed that in my first few years of quiz mastering is because I wanted the quiz master to be able to maintain order in the room and and make progress through the through the quiz, right? So I wanted to give the quiz master a lot of deference, um, a lot of sort of leeway to get things sorted out, right? And then you know I would be there trusting that the quiz master would rule appropriately and and do things fairly and consistently. And I also had this sort of I guess myopic or naive belief that quiz masters in different districts, different rooms, different meets would ultimately over the long term generally operate the rooms in the same way, given that sort of scenario over time. And I mean, a lot of years, right? Uh, until now, I have really done a 180 where, where I'm very much on the, the, the side of like, unless I, Unless there's something really compelling, I'm very much, I want to default to the idea that the quiz master can only do what is explicitly said. Uh, and that is, and if something is not said, there is a limit uh, because it is not said, right? And I, I see that there is a spectrum and I can understand, you know, if somebody, you know, is taking a different view on that. Uh, but for me, that's just kind of where I'm at. And the reason is because I feel, and maybe I'm naive now, um, who knows, but I think I have shifted because I have come to realize my naivete of my earlier years, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. And um, so I think it might, I can't tell if it's a good segue into this next bit or not. I don't have anything else to add on that one, but 
this next question is there are absolutely rules and procedures written in the rule book to prevent to either prevent bad action by participants and by participants I mean quizzers coaches officials or to um I want I don't want to call them bad but like to not to pre- to prevent a um not disagreeable but a situation we don't want so an example of something to prevent a bad action is we have rules about fouls and stage conduct right for the quizzers um, and for officials, we have, um, what a quiz master has to do, right. Or w- what a quiz master should do. And that's to prevent, um, bad actions of various sorts. But then we also have rules like quiz out, which is to prevent one quizzer from getting 20 correct questions in a quiz, right. Which isn't bad in the same sense, but it is a scenario that we don't want. Right. Sure. So my question is to what extent should we write rules to prevent, I guess, actions that we don't want versus, um, I, I guess I have a poor way of, I have a really poor way of, I actually have no way of phrasing this. So let me just go right to my first example. My first example is substitution rules, right? So a quizzer has to sit out for three questions or a quizzed out quizzer who leaves can't return. I can only imagine that these rules exist to kind of force coaches' hands to have their top quizzer quiz less. Um, but to me, that seems like a weird, quote-unquote, bad action that we want to explicitly prevent by means of the rulebook. Do you kind of see what I'm skirting around? I'm not sure I totally get there, but I will... This does... What you're saying does remind me of something from G.K. Chesterton. I Although he may have been quoting somebody even older than him. Um, not that he's particularly old. I mean, he's dead now, but I mean, with, when he, when he, when he wrote it, uh, whatever live, sorry, I'm getting way sidetracked. Anyway, GJ, I, I remember GK Chesterton writing about the idea of, you know, if, if somebody is walking along a country road and you got to imagine this is, you know, England somewhere, right? You're wandering along some country road in England and you see a fence somewhere, right? Um, you should, and, and you have no idea why this fence is there, right? Like, like, what is the purpose of this fence? Your first action should not be tear down the fence because I don't see the point, but rather it should be, let's try to figure out what the point is. And then once we figure out the point, then we can decide whether we want to tear down the fence or not. Right. So he wasn't advocating like never tear down the fence, but it's rather more like if you don't understand the the point of the fence, try to figure it out first. And maybe we can't, maybe the, the purpose of the fence is, is lost to time, you know, kind of stuff. So, you know, in terms of the substitution rules, I, I tend to agree with you. I don't quite understand the, the, the why I don't understand why that fence is there. Um, I don't, quite understand the value that it provides other than maybe cutting down on the commotion required to substitute quizzers during a quiz. Like if you were doing it every other question or something, it might get really annoying for the officials. Um, That might be the only reason I could, I don't know, maybe that's a good reason for the fence, but beyond that, I'm not really sure. But in terms of where you're going for on this one, I'm, I'm not, Sure, I'm following you, unless I just stumbled onto it. All right. Well, I have more examples, so hopefully you will help me figure out what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think on the substitution, a lot of the commotion would be taken care of in that you can only do a sub during a timeout. But I do wonder if in the pen and paper, bibs, um, manual scoreboard world, there was a lot more overhead to s- substitutions. So, I mean, it could be that these rules exist purely because of logistical overhead. 
right? In which case they could immediately be stricken because we don't have such overhead anymore. Um, right. But another one is, so I'm going to probably come across as very egotistical here, <laughs> but what I observe is when I see quizmasters doing things that I think are bad, I want to write a rule for it. But then I realize that there is a really like, there is a limit to the positive impact rule writing to mitigate bad quiz mastering can do, right? But that doesn't mean that there aren't some rules that we can write to prevent maybe what we deem to be the worst kinds of quiz mastering, right? Because we do have some kind of procedure rules and languages around um, how quiz masters read questions and things, right? But sure. one, a big example is requiring a unique word, right, to be correct. So I was part of a lot of those conversations, and um, there were people who felt one way and people who felt the other way. And one of the one of the biggest sentiments of people who did not like this idea was there are many, um, a non-trivial amount of unique words that just don't carry a lot of meaning. And then we're requiring quizzer to say a word that just happens to occur once but doesn't carry anything. Right. Right. And I think th and I think ultimately it was decided to acknowledge that but the net positive of the rule was better because of the greater consistency achieved. And while I think implicit in that is we need greater consistency because there are quiz masters now who need this sort of rule to rule better. And currently they are not requiring content that is significant. <laughs> and so like for me, I don't think I do that. And so this, all this rule does is in a small amount of cases, I have to require a unique word that I deem to be very insignificant. But for a lot of other cases for bad quiz masters who are overly lenient, they have been brought more toward more in accordance with the rest of quiz mastering them. Right. And so it's kind of almost dri this rule is driven by a desire to prevent a bad kind of officiating. And I don't know, do you have thoughts about that desire? And is it good in some cases and not in others? And if if it is good in some cases, not in others, how do we make the distinction? Sure. So I think the desire is good, right? The desire to have ever better officials uh, at all levels in all rules is a good desire, right? Why do we want to have gooder uh, quiz masters than less gooder quiz masters, right? We want that because it will be better for the program in terms that quizzers will be mo more motivated, less demotivated, uh, and therefore we will be supporting mission, right? And, and that's where it all kind of descends from me, you know, in, in terms of first principles. So the question is how to go about doing that, right? There are certain things that you can do in terms of consistency with, with in rules. Uh, so in, I, well, let me rephrase that. I think there is a way to make good quiz masters, a pool of good quiz masters, more consistent by crafting rules, right? Uh, so essentially, if you have a group of 10 or 15 or 20 or whatever number of quiz masters and you don't have certain rules, by contrast, uh, you can have good quiz masters doing inconsistent things and that's bad for mission, right? It's counter mission. Mm -hmm. uh, if you take those same 10 or 20 or whatever quiz masters and you provide them a set of rules that allows them to then be consistent with each other, or at least more consistent, maybe not ideally perfectly consistent, that is a that is a positive, right, for, for quizzing for all the things that we've talked about before. So there, that desire, I think, is a good thing. However, if you have a bad official, right, um, and, and how do I define bad here, right? Uh, so let's 
have one example that's just egregious. Let's say you have a quiz master who has an ego, a really big ego, and it's noticeable and it's distractive and they need to be the grand poobah in the room and they kind of come in as kind of a jerk and they treat coaches rudely and they treat quizzers rudely. How do you write a rule in the rule book that says the quiz master shall not be a jerk, right? Like, I, I don't, the desire to write a rule to make quiz masters be nice is I, I, I totally get the desire and, and I, I support the desire, but the implication of that in terms of turning that into a set of rules in the rule book is, is, you know, disaster. Uh, so we can't, we cannot craft good quiz masters with rules. I think what we can do is we can take good quiz masters and make them consistent with rules. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really answer my question, but I don't know that my question was ever answerable. Um, cause I, it's making me think there are tons of rules that you could theoretically write that would be like probably positive in some sense, but there's not a, a real good reason to write them. Like you could say any team up by more than 200 who asks for a score check will be given a foul, you know, or, right. yeah. you know, but those like on some level, I think it's unhelpful to write rules to prevent things like that. And I'm just, I'm wondering where that line would be. And maybe it's different with quiz masters because, um, the nature of reading questions and, um, putting down rulings and things, um, lends itself to both a more important but a more objective and things need to be more consistent and you know you expect the range to be a lot smaller than the potential conduct range of quizzers right of all ages um sure anyway well and culture culture is a virus and i mean that in a good in a good way right like good culture is virally spread to people coming into the environment of the culture, right? Ditto for bad culture. Uh, but the idea being that if you have a quiz master that has a good attitude, is friendly, is personable, is trying to be as fair as possible, and it's obvious that they're trying to be as fair as possible, that they're not trusting themselves 120%, but they're checking things in the rule book from time to time. They're, you know, they're, they're, willing to listen to challenges openly and fairly, you know, that sort of stuff that lends itself to a culture in the room. Because I mean, who's speaking the most in a room? The quiz master is speaking the most by a wide margin, right? So the attitude and disposition of the quiz master sets the culture of that room and cumulatively the quiz masters for a meet set the culture for that meet. And over time that sets the culture for a program, both at the district level and internationally and interdistrict and everywhere. Right? So, you know, this stuff is really important, but at the same time, I don't know how we codify, you know, a positive attitude uh, in the rule book. Rather, I think what we do is we, you know, we look at quiz master candidates and we give them a chance to, uh, you know, quiz master a quiz here and there. And we watch them and we say, do they have it, you know, quote unquote, the it factor, uh, or do they have the, the proto it where maybe it's not it yet, but you can kind of see the diamond in the rough sort of thing. And you'd be like, yeah, I think this, this person has what it takes in terms of all of these sort of soft skills. Uh, because I mean, honestly, with, a, with, with enough practice, I think people can develop their speaking skills and develop a lot of other quiz mastery skills. I think, um, I mean, there's certain, certain 
folks where it's going to be more of an uphill battle than for others, right? For some folks, it comes more naturally. But uh, I, I don't. I think it's easier to teach that and train that than it is to uh, take somebody who is kind of high and mighty and a jerk and shape them into not being a jerk. Yeah. I think um, if a quiz master is not going to put forth the effort to apply the rule book as written, then no amount of rules will make a difference. <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. So follow up on the last podcast. Um, I was putting forth the idea that the quality of a challenge could change a ruling, right? Um, a good challenge, a quote unquote good challenge um, could be accepted and a quote unquote bad challenge could be overruled um, in the exact same room for the exact same scenario, right? So I came, I crafted a scenario for you um, from Matthew 2.14. So this is an interrogative question. And the question is, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money where? And the required answer is in the temple courts. So the quiz master reads the question, question, he found people selling cattle. And the quizzer answers, he found people selling cattle, livestock, sheep, doves, and others sitting in the temple at tables exchanging money. So the only two differences are the quizzer inserted livestock and then said in the temple instead of in the temple courts, but also moved the location. And then in my my scenario here, the quizmaster rules incorrect and says, even though I don't consider livestock to be incorrect information, I needed specifically temple courts. Okay. So challenge... Challenge A is, I think saying the temple is good enough. And challenge B is, much like the biblical uses of mankind refer to all people and not just men, uses of temple often refer to the temple courts. So because the meaning was not changed and all the information that could change the meaning was provided, the quizzer should be counted correct. And given those two challenges, I would probably overrule A and accept B. Now, I am not sure if what B said about temple, temple courts being interchangeable is correct, but just assume that it is for the purposes of this, right? But what I'm saying is the quality of that challenge is enough to sway me in the scenario where I was very much on the fence about whether the quizzer gave me enough to be counted correct or not. Okay. So what we're doing here is we are assuming that the the logic of challenge B is enough to, to sway, right? Ye um, yes, yes. Okay, so in that scenario, by definition, then the quizmaster should change the ruling because of challenge B then, right? Correct. Okay, so really what all we're talking about is in the scenario of challenge A, right? Now, what happens if the quizmaster in challenge A is not aware of the logic of challenge B? They will probably not overrule their, their ruling. Um, so again, not very interesting, but where it becomes interesting is under scenario A, challenge A slash scenario A, the quiz master is aware or becomes aware actually, because if, if, the, if the quiz master was always aware of information B, right during scenario A, they wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have made the original ruling, right? What we're really talking about here is that at the moment or or in the process of challenge A, the quiz master becomes aware of challenge B's information, right? In other words, the quiz master uh, in the process of listening to challenge A I, or either before or after challenge A is taking place, maybe during the deliberation of challenge A, the quiz master realizes the logic of challenge B, 
on his or her own, right? Or, you know, the, the answer judge points out like, hey, what about this challenge B concept, right? Even though challenge B was never a challenge, but the, I'm saying Correct. the logic of challenge B is, is, is shared, right? Um, to me, I think in any scenario where, and I am, of course, I'm assuming I just said answer judge, so I've already complicated it, but let's pretend, <laughs> so let, let's pretend I didn't say answer judge. Let's say I'm, I'm, I instead said scorekeeper. So we're just keeping the whole like answer judge quiz master relationship thing out of this for, for now. We're just purely talking about the quiz master, right? So let's say the, the either the quiz master self realizes, uh, the, the logic B or the scorekeeper mentions, oh, by the way, have you thought of logic B or something during situation A? I think the quiz master is required to change the ruling, right? So in other words, if, if you, if, if you're a quizzer in my room and you get a question and I count you incorrect and you challenge because uh, let's say you uh, you used what you thought was a synonym and I thought it wasn't a synonym and it was enough wrong that I thought you were providing informa uh, incorrect information. And so I counted you incorrect. And you challenge and you say, I don't think what I provided was incorrect information. I think it was a synonym. Uh, I think you should have given me the remainder of my 30 seconds to answer. And in the course of my considering your response, or, or not your response, in my, in my time of considering or deliberating your challenge, I realize that the question is invalid. I'm going to throw out the question, right? It has absolutely nothing to do with your challenge. It's just that your challenge was the means by which I came to discover the invalidity of, of the question, right? Um, so to me, challenges I, I don't think it is required of the quiz master to actually provide a very compelling challenge. Um, that said, as quizzers, you should absolutely always strive to provide a compelling challenge, right? Um, like, like do your best to have an articulate, compelling uh, argument that makes sense that that's that's based on some logic and and you know the 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 better art the better you're able to articulate that the better i think your chances are going to be to implant the information uh, implant the idea in the in the brain of the quiz master right but the idea ultimately the goal is the quiz master has to get the idea in their head right um and if the idea comes from the quiz master directly because of the challenge or gets there indirectly because of the challenge, I don't think that matters. Sure. But if we're assuming that the quiz master is making their initial ruling based off of every piece of information that they can think of, um, would you, so you would agree that there could be a scenario where the, the quality of the challenge results in a different outcome. Sure. I think, I think there, I think the quality, I, I think there is a, a situation could develop, right? So like, let's say challenge A happens, right? And you're the quiz master, or I'm the quiz master, I'm gonna, because it's, let's say I'm the quiz master and challenge A happens. And let's say I don't think of the logic of challenge B on my own and my scorekeeper doesn't nudge me and provide me that information either, right? Um, to me, I, in that scenario, I might overrule the challenge. I probably would overrule the challenge, right? Whereas if challenge B did take place, I would accept challenge B, right? Assuming all the things that we're assuming about challenge B, right? Um, I'm simply saying that if in the course of challenge A, if I thought of challenge B as a quiz master, I would, uh, I would overrule or sorry, I would, I would, I would, sorry, let me, I'm getting all mixed up. I would actually 
overrule my ruling and overrule the challenge, if that makes any sense. It does, but that leads us to our next point. So I think I just wanted to establish that the quality of a challenge can change um, the ruling, even if it is the sure. same scenario, same quiz master. And I think you yeah. and I are also in agreement that a quiz master can change their ruling mid-challenge, but not for any reason presented in the challenge. Because a quiz master is just trying to get it right. Um, yes. However however they can, right? So if I realize that I've made a mistake, even if the challenge is awful, I will change my ruling. So, but then the question is, um, another question is, do you think the rule book allows for a quiz master to overrule a challenge, but then change their ruling at the same time? Or are they only able to change their ruling if they quote unquote accept that challenge? No, I think I think the the quiz master can absolutely change their ruling and overrule a challenge. I think that's I think that's necessary. Now, whether the rule book has ever even considered this as a plausible scenario, I doubt it. Um, I don't think the rule book prohibits it, but I'd have to go f- back through with a fine tooth comb looking specifically for this. But I think there is absolutely a a scenario where a quiz master overrules a challenge and has to overrule a challenge and yet will still change their ruling. But this is a case where you're saying it's okay because it's not explicitly prevented. Whereas, you know, my argument on why a threshold for incorrect information on reference questions is fine is because it makes sense because of um, the definition of the type, even though nothing about the definition for incorrect information makes a distinction between types. Right? Right, right. But I think there's a difference between those two scenarios based on the ultimate result of those two things, right? So like, imagine a scenario where the quiz master knows that the question is invalid, right? Um, Asked the question, got it answered, counted the, the quiz are incorrect. There was a challenge that is clearly wrong, right? So you have to overrule the challenge, but you know quite clearly that the, the, the question itself is invalid, right? Um, I think you have a duty to, Uh, toss the question and redo it yeah but i mean the definition of invalid questions just say like questions should be declared invalid by the quiz master if and then when a quiz question is deemed invalid and thrown out it must be replaced it it makes no distinction of like when this could happen so to me right declaring a question invalid can happen at any point but to me changing a ruling from correct to incorrect um i'm not sure that can happen hmm okay interesting um because right. to I'm, me, I'm, an invalid question to me, I mean, that's a trump card. The quizmaster can pull out mid-challenge, mid-protest, maybe even if they've started the next question. You know, like to me, it's just, you know what? That question was invalid. We're going to like throw it out and redo it. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Yeah, yeah, but, fair enough. Um, yeah, so you're really talking about like, I counted somebody incorrect. I realized that they are actually correct. And the challenge was to call them correct, but for a terribly wrong reason. Yeah, wrong, I still think I have to. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, I still think I, 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 yeah. I, I, I don't know how I would parse this in the moment, but setting the challenge, how to deal with the challenge, setting that aside for a moment. If I realize I made an incorrect ruling, I must fix the ruling. Right. I, I think uh, if I counted somebody incorrect and I should have counted them correct and I have not yet started the next question, then it's like, yeah, I, I'm I'm fixing my error. 
Um, I'm going to, I need to admit my error and do it loudly and publicly. And I need to fix my error. Um, that to me is un, unambiguous and unquestionable. Uh, the, the sort of the question in my mind then is how do I mark on the score sheet? What happens to the challenge? <laughs> right. Um, ultimately I'm, I'm agreeing with the challenge in the sense that I'm agreeing with one portion of the challenge to change my ruling, but I'm disagreeing with all the other parts of the challenge, right? So do, is that counted as an overruled challenge or does that, is that counted as a confirmed challenge? Um, hmm. I guess I'm going to say that I'm going to agree. I'm, I'm going to say it's not an overruled challenge. And I'm going to squint and, and even though I don't think this is super valid, I'm going to squint and say that this is the case because I am agreeing with at least a portion of the challenge, the portion being that I should have changed my ruling. Sure. And like, I'm just looking at the section on challenging and there's no specific language about how a quizmaster should rule or what's grounds for changing their, you know, there's like no, no specifics around that. And I don't think anyone would have a problem with you. Um, changing your ruling and saying like, and I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not changing my ruling because of what was presented in the challenge, but because I think my initial ruling was incorrect. And I'm also not going to levy an overrule challenge. I don't think anyone would have a problem with that because I could, I could also craft a scenario where because you can only protest before the next question is called that a quiz master calls the next question, realizes that their previous ruling was bad, changes it, and then no one can challenge or protest. (laughs) But I, in that scenario, I don't think anyone would have a problem with people being allowed to challenge or protest. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, and this is the thing. I have, I've been in situations where I've quiz mastered and I'm on question number 13 and it dawns on me that I made a ruling mistake on question nine, right? Um, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, I'm, I'm not going back and changing, you know, question nine, like, uh, I'm going to feel bad about it for the rest of the quiz. And then when the quiz is over, I'm going to probably try to find one of the captains or maybe one of the coaches and explain like, yeah, I screwed up on question number nine. Uh, but, but there's no going back at that point. Sure. But the reason that there's no going back is everything that's transpired since then is dependent upon what happened before, you know, like there's just too much to redo, but in a scenario where you've like started like you know, question nine is an interrogative question. You know what? And then you like think about question eight. I think that that's fine. You know, um, I don't, obviously- I don't, th- I don't know. I'm not so sure. Right. Because here's the thing. I think you have to, if you change your ruling on eight after calling the question type for nine, you have to allow for the opportunity for somebody to challenge. And if you don't agree, then you have to allow for the opportunity to protest, which means there's, you're going to have you, you, like, there's going to be communications and, and there's going to be chatter, which means everybody knows question number nine is an int, right? So let's say, let, let's flip it around and say, we're talking about question 18 versus 19 yeah. and 19 is a quote question or something versus an int or something like that really, really, really matters. Um, and so like, I think once you, I think anytime up until but not including the calling of the question type is totally fair. But once you call the question type of the next question, I think you're pretty much done unless somebody's going to protest the quiz. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I think all of this makes me wonder, like, and we would love ideas. Would there be something helpful to write in the rule book that gives a quiz master some amount of leeway in all of these situations that I have conjured up that may have 
absolutely never happened and might never happen. And we don't want to like write specific rules for all of these very corner case situations, but might there be something useful to add to the rule book when I know that, you know, you and I are in agreement that as much as possible, we want quizmasters to only be doing things that they're explicitly allowed to do. Um, right. And one of the only things that they are like, they have leniency over is there's the, um, they can levy a foul for anything against the the spear of quizzing, right? Which is the most right. vaguest thing, but it's, you know, probably useful. Right, right. And almost never used. Yep. So this was back on our, what is a quizmaster allowed to do versus, um, when thinking about things that they have explicitly been granted to do or it's not prevented. And it's on fouls. So let's say there's a bonus jump for one team. And while you're asking the question, quizzers one to two kind of look at each other and do some nonverbal communication. But then quizzer three, who wasn't looking at them at all, jumps. Would you call a foul before quizzer three answers? After they answer, call a foul on quizzers one and two, throw out the question to redo it. Like, how would you proceed? That's interesting. Um, and we are assuming in this scenario that whatever Quizzers 1 and 2 did, it is absolutely fallible. Yes, yes. That's not in scope for this discussion. Yeah. Then I would immediately foul them and probably redo the question. Um, the reason I would redo the question, I could be argued out of that second part, but I would immediately foul them uh, and point out what was going on. I would probably redo the question because Quizzer 3... Uh, should, should they, mm, yeah, this is, this is interesting. I would, mm, I'm not sure what I would do. I'd have to read the rule book really carefully all along these lines. I think this is a scenario that the rule book does not cover because we do team jumping bonuses rather than individual bonuses. Um, hmm. I mean, there, I, I think the rule book doesn't allow you to throw out a question in this specific, doesn't say you can, but there are times where we do, right? Where a quiz yeah. master stumbles on something and they're like, you know what, I'm going to throw that and redo it. The, the rule book doesn't say you're allowed to do that, but it's fine. Right. And I do that. Everybody who's been in my room knows that I do that every so often because I'm a recovering stutterer. I actually, in junior high, I had a very pronounced stutter and uh, I still, from time to time, will sort of get tripped up over words or something like that. And, and unfortunately, as a quiz master, if I do that, I have to toss out the question. So I don't know. I think I would, if I was in the moment, I would probably immediately rule them, uh, rule a foul on one and two. And then I would redo the question uh, and let anybody else on the team jump for it. Okay. My next scenario, which I brought up in the past, is when... A coach speaks up. Let's say it's also a bonus question, and I say it's a bonus jump for team A, and it's an interrogative question. And the coach says, come on, so-and-so. It's an interrogative or something like that. Um, the rule book is fairly vague because it talks about individual fouls and team fouls but doesn't really define either. And I think most people assume that team fouls are just the sum of individual fouls and not some undefined foul that is applied to the entire team. But I'm just wondering in that scenario, what can a quiz master do? Like can a quiz master foul individual quizzers for something the coach did? Um, anyway, that's my other question. Yeah, this may be something that we need to deal with in, you know, 1.1 or 1.2 of the rule book um, after the rewrite. I agree. The rule book does not provide a great, option here. Um, I mean, so in the scenario that you specifically provided, I would probably squint and just keep going. And then I would mention to the coach afterward, like, 
please don't do that. Um, you know, like it's one thing to cheer for your team, uh, but it's another thing to say, quizzer number three, jump on this one, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's, that's not cool. Like you can't do that, uh, except during a, a sub or a, a timeout. So, um, yeah, I mean, and it also sort of depends on what the coach is saying in that moment, right? So if the coach says, come on, quizzer three, right? Or, or let's say quizzer three is, is, uh, uh, Jennifer, right? Okay, go Jennifer or something like that. And I would probably squint and say, well, the coach is just being encouraging. Okay, fine. But then if the coach said, Sarah, don't jump on this one, then I'd be like, okay, no, no, I'm, I, that sort of crosses a, a line uh, that, that is, uh, is subjective and is not part of the rule book. And I'm totally making stuff up on the fly here. And I know this is awful and I shouldn't do this, but I would probably throw out the question at that point and probably redo it. But I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think I can punish the team for what the, what, for what the coach did. I think instead what I do is I just embarrass the coach by saying that's not cool. Sure. And I'm definitely wanting to talk about the scenario where it is like a pretty egregious foul action, right? Because there are yeah. absolutely times where maybe I'm talking at a, at a clip and I just say, oh, question 11 is an interrogative question. And the coach is already kind of starting to say, let's go PNW. And they just say the team name. And oftentimes I will just pause and like address the room and just say like, as a reminder, you can't say anything after the type's been introduced because 99% of the time the coach did not intend to say something at that timing. But I'm talking about like a specific case where a coach was getting in information to aid the team at a certain point, you know, like, right. I feel like I would want to foul everyone on the team or something, but I don't know if like, I mean, I definitely have the ability to do that, but I don't know if it's the right thing to. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, um, it's, it's making me very uncomfortable considering these hypotheticals because, and I mean, it's, I think it's good that I'm feeling uncomfortable. I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, I, and I, and the reason I think it's making me feel uncomfortable is because I don't have a clear cut way of being consistent. Um, and, and that's not good. I need a clear cut way of being consistent. Sure. Yep. So that's another thing. If people have thoughts on, you know, do you think there are scenarios where a quiz master should be allowed to prevent everyone on a team from, or everyone on all three teams from jumping on a particular question for some reason or another? Um, and would that mechanism be useful? And if so, like yeah. what would be the implementation to be consistent and not just be a, um, a blunt club? That is all. That is all. Well, we actually got through it all. So uh, a lot of very interesting, and you can see a lot of spidering philosophical kind of things that connect up to the stuff that's here. So I am sure that somewhere along the lines, Scott or I, or both of us have said something that you disagree with. And if so, uh, we would very much like to hear from you. And even if we said a bunch of stuff that you agree with, and you couldn't find anything that we, that, that we said that you disagree with, we'd still like to hear from you too, but we are, we, we sort of give front of line privileges to those who disagree. So uh, in all cases, please email us at IQ at CBQZ.org. We'd like to hear if you disagree or agree or have any additional thoughts on such things. You can also follow us uh, or follow the show uh, on Twitter. Our, our account is at inside quizzing. And if you'd like to chatter with us about anything on the show or quizzing related in kind of almost real time, you can do so on Slack, uh, the biblequizzing.slack.com uh, forum in the inside-quizzing uh, channel. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening, everybody. 